again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Wherever there's prey, predators will find it. However people can be taken advantage of, the charlatans will be there, with religious groups seen as a lucrative target. Early church leaders had to constantly root out false teachers, but always with the hope that they might still receive the grace that Christ offers. Teaching team member David McNeely continues a series from Jude with this message entitled, Why Contend for the Faith, which covers Jude, verses 5 through 16. Thank you for joining us today. My name is David McNeely, one of the pastors here on staff, work with uh, young adults and uh, young families, and it's my privilege to be here uh, again with you. We are in the middle of a three-week series in which we're looking at the book of Jude. Before I move any further, I want to draw your attention to inside of your worship folder, you'll find where the, uh, I think, points to remember, uh, inserts, uh, things where you can take notes. On the back side of that, down at the bottom, you'll see a little website, and that's a place that we have put some resources that we want to make available to you to help and aid in your study of the Bible. So uh, some of those, uh, I, I think there's a little star in there. Once you get online, it says, David McNeely recommends this, not because we think my recommendations are the greatest things in the world, just because um, if the leadership of the church disagrees in any way, they can just throw it on me, as opposed to being uh, recommendations coming officially from perimeters. That's why it says that. Um, I think you'll find it helpful. One in particular, there's videos, there's other things, but one in particular is uh, one of my favorites, and it's written by our own Charles Hooper, pastor here, uh, on just how to study the Word. It's just a brief article. Uh, uh, check it out. I think you'll be, uh, uh, be aided very well in that. Now, last week we talked about the writer, the receiver, and the reason. The writer of this letter is a guy named Jude who is a servant of Jesus. That's his primary identity. He's writing to a group of people that are called the called. Those that God has called out to, he has drawn them into a relationship with himself. They are redeemed. And as the called ones, they are beloved by God and kept by God, kept by Jesus. All the way to the very end. Those that are in his hand can never get out of his hand. It's not a hand that squashes, it's a gentle embrace. But he never lets those on the outside get in and have their way with us. It doesn't mean we won't go through hard times. It just means that at the end of the day, he will preserve our very souls. The reason was to contend for the faith. Fight. Fight for the truth of the gospel. Now, We said that was the what, but now here this week, we want to spend our time on the why. Why would we contend for the faith? Why is he writing to them to say, contend for this faith? And I think I could probably sum it up for you in a very simple manner. So we talked about this grace, this mercy, this beautiful, outrageous, unbelievable almost forgiving grace of God which cleanses us. And that same power that God has to do that is the power he gives us to live out our faith and to live in righteousness. God doesn't just forgive us so that our sins are are, are dealt with in the sense of no longer bringing uh, condemnation or judgment. He actually wants us to live and to walk in a way that's consistent with his character. So think of it this way. For today's purposes, we'll say this. God loves mercy. He digs it, and he hates sin. I don't mean that he's a little irritated by it. I don't mean that it bothers him just a little bit. I mean he hates sin. Why? Because it doesn't reflect him. 
not who he is. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. He loves mercy and he hates sin. According to the scriptures, there's a place that was created for the devil himself, a fallen angel whom we'll speak of in just a few moments. In hell, it seems in the scriptures, there's a very strong case for this to be made. I think that it's undeniable, in fact, that hell was created for the devil. It is a place of eternal and conscious torment. It is a place of eternal separation from God. It is described as a place of utter darkness, and yet the flame will not ever cease to exist. It is everything miserable you could ever possibly fathom or imagine, and it is a million times worse than that. It is created for the devil. However, it is also for those who refuse to submit to the lordship of Christ. We cannot have Jesus as just a savior of our sins. We also must have him as the Lord over our lives, meaning that we reach a place that we say, I no longer control the shots. You control the shots and you can do to me, with me, for me, around me, over me, whatever you choose, whenever you choose, however you choose. And for those who have not bowed the knee of submission in that, Their sins have not been forgiven. The work of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection has not been applied to that person because they're standing in their own merit, not in the merit of Jesus Christ. And hell awaits all who refuse that. Now I know that some right now have just thought in their minds, that is so condemning, that is so unloving. You Christians... I see how you just are judgmental. You, you want to bring these statements that are intended to bring fear and hate against us. And I want to tell you, it's not really what I think I'm doing. But rather than letting a pastor answer that charge of being condemning, I would like to let an atheist answer that charge himself. This man is a self-professed atheist. He's a man made in the image of God. I actually like him a ton. He's very funny. He's very gifted. He's very good at what he does. And we're not thinking about that question of, is it unloving and and unkind of Christians to speak about this message of God's impending judgment? Listen to what Penn has to say. So turn your attention to the screens. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. He had been the um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament, little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, 
and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. I love what he had to say in this. The most unloving thing that a Christian can do is to not share this message with others. You can accuse me of a whole lot of things, but being unloving is not one of those when it comes to sharing with you what I really believe is the truth of what the scriptures have to say. He also pointed out how we go about giving this message to others is very, very important. Am I treating others with all of the dignity that God made them with? Even though they may not think there is a God at all, am I treating them with the dignity and value that God placed into them simply when he made them? If you don't know how to share your faith, please come and check out Express Your Faith that Randy does. 
I got a hold of that in the middle of the 1990s when we were in the warehouse, and I fell in love with it, just ripped it straight from Randy. And I've been able to walk people through the same investigation now for years and years. It is a joy and a privilege to do. I think what unnerves us the most about this whole concept of there being a place of eternal judgment where people are experiencing the righteous wrath of God for all eternity, what bothers us the most is the fact that we know there are folks that we love, that we cherish, that might experience that. It's unnerving to think that those in my home might experience that. My friends might experience that. My coworkers. Those that I have grown up with and may not spend much time with anymore, but those that I love and value and cherish, it is, the thought of that is unnerving. Now, let me say this. It's not just the thought of those that we love going through it. If there's something inside of you right now that stands up and says, yes, can't wait for the righteous wrath of God to be unveiled and unleashed on all who deserve it, then let me assure you of this. You are not connected to the heart of God. Because scriptures tell us he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. He grieves. Don't turn there. Mark it down. But just listen. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He loves mercy. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He hates sin. John Piper has been so very helpful for me in this particular passage where he says that what God is not doing is punishing innocent children for sins they did not commit. He is not punishing children for the sins of their fathers and grandfathers. What he's doing, God is doing is this, allowing the natural course of events to take place so that the sins of the fathers are lived out in front of the children. The children see it, they learn from it, they go the same direction by their own choice, by their own will, and they experience the same suffering that has gotten the father's. He loves mercy. He hates sin. Back to Jude. Begin reading with me now in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe And angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs that your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's important that we remember this, that last week, Jude had told them, you're called, beloved, and kept by God. These are the people of God that he's writing to. And now Jude is going to turn his attention, and he's going to speak about the false teachers. He's saying, watch out for them. Here's what they are destined for unless they repent. This is what all are destined for unless there is repentance. But he's going to talk specifically here about those who are teachers of God's word, who would get up and claim that they are speaking on behalf of God. And there's nothing that God despises more than people who misrepresent him and his ways. It seems from the scriptures that there are various levels of hell. And the darkest gloom and the highest and hottest flames of hell itself are reserved for false teachers. So you, today, if you desire to be a teacher of the word, take heed. There are moments in my life when the task is overwhelming. And I get to a passage like this and my natural inclination is to say, I don't want to do this, Lord. I have been called by God to speak what he said, not what I think. He starts out by telling them about three reminders of God's righteous condemnation. He says, I know that you already know this, but I want to give you just three reminders of what happens when people turn away from God. When they refuse to bow the knee of submission, here's what happened. The first example that he gives of those who are coming out of Egypt is the destruction of the unbelievers from the Exodus. Now, in this passage, he tells us that Jesus is the one who actually pulled the people out of the land of slavery and into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's Jesus who led them all along the way. Moses happened to be the earthly vessel, but it's Jesus who is leading them all along this process. And miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle are performed in there. And they get to the end of this, out of this exodus, watching all that God had done, experiencing the temporal freedom that he had given them. And they refused to believe. Jude tells us that Jesus destroyed them. He destroyed them for their utter lack of belief, their refusal to believe that God is who he said he is. According to Deuteronomy, all those who were age 20 and older would have perished in this 40-year wandering so that the younger generation would go in. One theologian did the math and discovered that it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 people per day that were perishing as a result of their unbelief. And all along this time, all they had to do was repent. But they did not. They did not repent because they did not believe. My friends, today, if you think 
that just being a part of a church guarantees you your salvation. You are sorely mistaken. Paul says that not all of Israel were Israel. Meaning that all who were part of the community, who looked like it on the outside, were part of those who were believing on the inside. And today, we would be wise to ask ourselves, am I? My youth pastor, Ron Musselman, used to say it this way, being in a church no more makes one a Christian than being in a garage makes one a car. (laughs) Jesus destroyed the unbelievers for the lack of belief. The second example that he gives has to do with the uh, angels. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains. According to Revelation, according to Isaiah, according to Jesus, it would seem that the devil was in heaven and that he had a battle with the Lord. It was not a very real battle in terms of there was no chance that God was going to lose it, but he wanted to ascend to the place where he had the same place of authority, leadership, glory that the Lord did, the Lord God himself. And God said, I will share my throne with no one. And so in this rebellion against God, he takes a third of the angels with him. Some of that third are actually held to this moment under lock and key. They are in eternal chains, waiting for the ultimate judgment that will happen when Jesus returns. Others of those angels are here and free to roam the earth to bring about wreak wreak havoc and destruction. But there are some who are kept in their eternal chains. Why? Because they left their place of authority. The angels had a role in a specified task from God, and that was to be messengers of God, to deliver the message of God to the people, to stay within their level of authority, not to try to go above it. And they tried to go above it and rebel against God. And he keeps them in eternal chains. This same word, kept, is the word that was used earlier. The same God who keeps us in his righteous right hand is the one who keeps the fallen angels. There is no chance for them to repent. There is still a chance for all people to repent. The third example that he gives is of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a punishment of eternal fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are notorious all throughout the scriptures. They became the poster child for seeing the, the judgment of God. Deuteronomy 29, 23, Isaiah 1, 9, 13, and 19, Jeremiah 23, 14, Lamentations 4, 6, Amos 4, 11, Matthew 10, 15, Mark 6, 11, Luke 10, and Luke 17 all point to Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin that they were involved in. If you know anything about the scriptures at all, I'm sure that you would say that, there's Sodom, that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was one of a sexual nature, and you're right, it is indeed one of a sexual nature, but it is not the only sin that they were guilty of according to the Scriptures. The story goes like this, though. Angels had come down to this particular city because of their evil. In Ezekiel 16, 49, he tells us that the sin of Sodom was pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not go and do anything to ease the pain and the needs of the poor. They had become so evil that there was no restraint whatsoever to their their desire. They would pursue anything that they wanted to pursue. And the story comes that the angels come down to warn the people of God to move away from them. And while these angels were here in human form, the men of Sodom began to demand that they bring these men out so that they might rape them repeatedly. And their unrestrained desire, just that being one of the sins, not all only 
limited to that. God brought down fire from heaven in which he destroyed the people that were there. Jude is trying to let us know that was a temporal fire that was brought. There's an eternal fire that is coming. The intensity of the punishment. He now turns his attention to talk about the three specific sins of the false teachers in verse 8. The three sins are that they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They claim to have superior dreams, and he refers to them as dreamers. They claim that they had the same type of visions that John and Peter and Paul had had from God, but these were not their, the visions from God. They were just dreams in their own mind as they dreamed about how they might use themselves and others in the process for their own glory, for their own purposes, to their own shame. He says that they defiled the flesh. The word literally means they were using their bodies for unholy purposes. God says, it's not why I gave you that body. For the Christian, we would now say, I don't even have the right to call this body my own. I have been bought at a price. Those who would say you can do whatever you want with your body are are misinterpreting the scriptures grossly. They defile the flesh. It does not mean that they are necessarily engaging in all of the fleshly sins, but they are engaged in many of them. It says that they reject authority. It's an active refusal to surrender to the lordship of God. It's a refusal to to bow the knee of submission and say, you have your rightful place here and I have my rightful place here. He says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. We're not sure exactly how they blasphemed the glorious ones, but what we do know is this. They blasphemed the angels that were there. Again, angels were the ones who had the message of God that were brought to the people, and apparently what these teachers, these false teachers, these apostate teachers were doing was they were blaspheming the message from those angels saying, hey, what they said is not true. It's too difficult. We have gotten the new word, and so don't listen to those messengers of old They don't know what they're talking about. We are the enlightened ones and we know what we're talking about. You can do whatever you want to do now. They were trying to take the place of the authority over God's word. And anyone who places themselves over the authority of God's word will be dealt with harshly. He then gives an example of Michael the archangel. Michael was the angel who, according to Several passages of scripture, one in Revelation and another in Daniel, says that he is at the highest place of the Lord's army, that he will be moving forward the kingdom of God uh, uh, forward in victory one day. And the devil was arguing over the particular of what to do with Moses' body. Jude is quoting from an outside source. It's in Jewish apocalyptic literature. It is not on par with the scriptures, but Jude, Jude was uh, quoting that to make his point about authority here. And he says that uh, Michael, when he was disputing over what to do with the body of Moses, did not even blasphemously, blasphemously rebuke the devil. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. He left it in the hands of God. He did not usurp his authority and try to go somewhere where he was not called by God. He left it in the hands of what, just a, a very quick and brief word on this. It is absolutely true that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But I think we should be very, very careful when we start walking around talking to demons and telling them what to do. Tread lightly on that ground. 
The archangel Michael himself said, the Lord rebuke you. Not my power, not my authority, not my wisdom, not my ingenuity. You leave that in the hands of God. He then has several things to say about the false teachers. I won't spend much time at all on this, but just look at the description that he gives in verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, meaning this. They blaspheme that which is incomprehensible, that which takes place in the angelic realm. We don't get all of that. Those are mysteries beyond our comprehension. They blaspheme that, but instead what they do is they live with unrestrained desires of the flesh moving forward, just like an unreasoning animal. An animal who does not have the same mind that we do, just does whatever it is that they instinctively need to do. That's what they are doing in this process. And he says, that which they are inviting others to come into, to participate in, to live in an an enlightened spiritual life, it's the very thing that is destroying them. Woe, he says. He's now going to go into three more examples of God's righteous condemnation. Woe to them who walked in the way of Cain. Walking in the way of Cain means this. Cain was the brother of Abel, the first two sons on the earth, Adam and Eve, the children that they had bore. And they were to bring sacrifices before the Lord. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. Cain's was not primarily because Cain brought a sacrifice that was just some of what he had to offer. Abel brought the best. Cain's attitude was, who are you? Who are you to demand that I bring my best? I'll save that for me. And when the Lord rejected that offering, he gets angry and embittered towards his brother. And then he goes and prays on the innocent and takes the life of Abel. These teachers are praying on the innocent. The judgment from Cain was that you are to walk away and you're to wander for the rest of your life. And Cain's heart was so rebellious that he gave the finger to God and he said, you tell me to wander, I'm going to build a place right here. And he tried to build an empire. The next one that he says is Balaam's error. Balaam was a man in the Old Testament who heard from God and was supposed to give the message of God to the people. And yet, according to other scriptures, Balaam, although he did deliver the message appropriately to others, his heart and his motive was in a place of gaining financially from them. So in other words, he would say whatever needed to be said in order to gain uh, financial gain from them. He even on one occasion counseled the people to live so grossly in immorality that God dealt harshly with them. Encouraging the people to be involved in an orgy. That that is what would bring glory and honor to God. And God brings judgment on him by killing him in battle. These teachers are following in that way too. Financial gain and licentiousness when it comes to morality. He says the worst though in terms of punishment for last. He talks about Korah's rebellion. Korah was a man who was on the scene with both Moses and Aaron. Moses was the representative of God. Aaron was the mouthpiece at that point. And this man tried to lead a rebellion. Korah tried to lead a rebellion against Moses. God interpreted that later in the scriptures as, he is trying to rebel against me. And in that rebellion, God did not even give human agent to administer the punishment and judgment. The earth itself opened up and he was swallowed into it. 
You want to rebel against God, what Judah's saying is get prepared. Earth will be opened up and hell awaits. My friend, I, I, I do want you to hear this. We should not be deceived into thinking that because God's judgment and punishment, when it doesn't come immediately, let us not be deceived into thinking it is not coming. All of the examples that he's given, they got away with it for a little while. But be sure, your sins will find you out. The Lord will not be mocked. He will not allow the guilty of the iniquity to go without punishment. Because he loves mercy and he hates sin. Very, very briefly now. There are six descriptions he gives of the false teachers. In verse 12, there are hidden reefs at your love feast. I think what he's saying is that they are rocks that are underneath the water that can't be seen by the ship, as he's, as the, by the captain as he's moving the ship along on its course. And when that ship hits those rocks, destruction takes place. He said they are shepherds that are feeding themselves. They are taking physical food from the people at these love feasts, feasts that were designed to be grand in nature, deep discussion, great support, fellowship that would happen. They would sit, seat themselves there. They would take the food from the people. But the irony is, there's no doubt in my mind, he's referring to what Ezekiel said also to the shepherds of that day. You are not feeding the people. You are taking, but you are not giving. He says that they are waterless clouds swept along by the winds. The clouds would come, and when the cloud would come during the season which it should be raining so that the earth would get the proper nourishment, when the cloud would come but would not drop the rain, there was great disappointment. That is what these people are. They're not feeding the people. They're not quenching the thirst for hunger that they would have for righteousness. Speaking empty words, and they move on. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. This means that they are dead And the evidence of that deadness is because there has been no fruit that has been provided. But they're going to be twice dead. In other words, he's saying to make the point here, you're also going to be uprooted. I will pull you up out of the ground. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Unrestrained, reckless, out of control waves just going about. And yet their actions and their words cause shame to come up to the top. When God looks down upon it, he sees horror. And then finally, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They are wandering stars, meaning they're not set and in a fixed place where they should be so that those could be guided on their journeys, be it on land or in the sea. They are wandering all over the place, not submitting to their authority. And as a result, darkness will, will be their lot in life for all of eternity. He's come down harsh on these teachers because he wants these teachers to understand this. He wants people to understand this. Shepherds should be reflecting the shepherd. The shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, who does not take but instead gives, who feeds, who cares for, who nourishes, who does not take advantage of, who does not lead them in the way of rebellion and darkness, who leads them to life because they're not reflecting the great shepherd of the sheep, he says, Destruction awaits you. He finally closes this section out in verses 14 through 16 by quoting a prophecy from Enoch. Again, apocalyptic literature that would be given. He says that Jesus is going to be the one who is going to come with a myriad of angels in order to bring judgment. Acts 10 
42, 17, 31, Romans 2, 16, 2 Timothy 4, 1, 1 Peter 4, 5, and Revelation 6, 10 all say the same thing. It tells us in the scriptures that he'll come with angels according to Matthew 16, 27, Mark 8, 38, Luke 9, 26, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 also say that Jesus comes with the angels in order to bring about judgment. We understand the scriptures correctly. There will be a sword that will be proceeding from Jesus' mouth. Blood will be on his shirt, not to be taken literally those things, but to let us know that he comes not in order to bring mercy, but he comes in order to bring judgment during this time. It is the same Jesus who placed himself on a cross voluntarily and willingly. The same one who gives grace will dispense the judgment. He then closes out by just saying this. They are grumblers. They are malcontents. They are following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, and they are showing favoritism. They are grumblers and malcontents, even though they're doing exactly what they want to do with unrestrained desire. They're living out what they want, and yet they're now calling against God for the fact that they don't have satisfaction in life. They are not submitting to the authority. They are speaking words that are empty, and they are boastful. They do it arrogantly with no fear of the Lord whatsoever. They show favoritism, meaning that they want to gain from others. Let me close by giving you just brief points of application and a closing illustration. Only two points of application. Number one, know that God is both righteously loving and he is righteously just. He loves mercy and he hates sin. Number two, examine your standing before God. My friends, today, if you would examine your standing and you would say, I'm coming before God, hoping to be made right with him, that in the end, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, that he will be impressed with my effort, then you are standing today on a ground that is not solid. It is offensive to God to come to him saying, God, I'm going to do my absolute best for you. He says, my son did his absolute best and his best far outweighs yours. His is the only one that is acceptable. So all who would come and throw their hands up in the air believe by faith that the work of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can be applied by the power of the Holy Spirit to the unbelieving person. All who would come in this way can be made right with God, but there is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved other than Jesus. So come to Jesus. If today you would say, I have done so, and I place no hope in anything other than Jesus, then let me ask you to do this. Would you spend the remaining of your days on earth calling out to others to come to Jesus? The story is told of an ancient civilization. The civilization would march forward. They would come up against a city, and that city would have a wall that would go on the outside of it for protection. They would march themselves right up close but they would drive a 40-foot pole into the ground and up on this pole they would raise a white flag and the white flag would fly high for all to be able to see within the city walls. And they would send messengers into that city and they would cry out to the top of their lungs, mercy, mercy, mercy. And all inside of those walls who would make their way out and gather up underneath this white flag would receive full rights of citizenship. But the time would come in which that white flag would come down and up in its place would go a black flag. And this kingdom would march forward and bring utter destruction on all who remained in there. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth. He went up on Paul's cross. 
On top of that cross is a white flag. And he's called his church, his people, to lovingly, graciously run to all four corners of the earth and cry out, mercy, mercy, mercy. And all who are inside of that kingdom who would make their way out and come underneath the cross of Jesus Christ will receive full rights of citizenships. They will be adopted as sons and daughters. They will be called. They will be kept. They will be loved. The time is coming in which that black flag is going up. And Jesus and his angels will march forward and they will utterly destroy all who refuse to submit. My friend, I do not tell you that today to try to scare you. I tell you because whether you believe it or not, I really do love you. Repent. Come to Jesus. You will never regret it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to you goes all of the glory and the honor for all that you have done. Father, you are a good, good Father. I pray today, Lord, that if there's anything that I have spoken that is not true and it is not of you, that you would forever remove it from our minds, always to be forgotten. But Lord, anything that is from you today, I pray that you would bury it so deep within our souls that we would become doers of your word rather than hearers only. So Lord Jesus, give us your heart. We love you. We pray all of these things in your most powerful and holy name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.